You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, well, thank you very much. That's very kind. I'd have to say that your uh, generous and enthusiastic welcome would be tempered a little bit if you knew the kind of temptations that assail a faculty member when he or she approaches the holy lectern. <laughs> the whole cloud of them. One temptation is to tell people things that you don't like. Uh, having ascertained uh, beforehand that these are things which they don't like as well, This way, you sort of establish rapport with the congregation at no particular effort. Another uh, temptation which uh, besets me this very minute, as the captain was kind enough to mention 37 years, uh, there's the temptation to reminisce, but I have successfully fought that down. (laughs) The greatest temptation, and and my colleagues uh, who are here will, uh, I think, attest to this. The greatest temptation that a faculty member faces when speaking in chapel is to succumb to the fear that some of the students and most of his colleagues or her colleagues will find that the speaker's grasp of the, the sacred subtleties of holiness, say, is a little shaky. In fact, a lot shaky. So that, in fact, the person will think that, you know, my colleagues will think that I'm not just shaky, but positively dim. And the way we correct this, the way we compensate for this, is that we become even more sophisticated, even more scholarly, even more theological, too theological, so that we have a tendency to lay layer on layer and to detect nuances, and we unpack concepts, and uh, (laughs) we tweak things. Now, of course, you're going to say that that doesn't sound like much of a temptation. That sounds like only a ploy to begin my few remarks. Wrong. Uh, You can't expect that a serious, sophisticated person, and I include all my colleagues in this, would likely to be prey, when I use the word temptation, I don't want you to be thinking along the lines of hovering over a glowing computer screen, three o'clock in the morning, breathing heavily. of temptations are the uh, those kind of temptations are the are the cheap goods they are the um, they are the sort of sale items they're the loss leaders in in Satan's armory of evil Uh, right on the level I like to think that that kind of temptation is right on the level of uh, feeding poison cream to a kitten Temptations to which we serious, sophisticated faculty members are prey are, as you see, entirely intellectual. But fear not, whatever they are, I have not succumbed. In fact, you'll be glad to know, I hope you'll be glad to know, that as I prayed for guidance and as the Holy Spirit helped me uh, to formulate a few things to share with you this morning, I went to the exact, he and I together, I pray, went to the exact opposite of from being sophisticated and nuanced and tweaking 
and seeing multi-layers and unpacking, I went to the very simplest kind of approach. You might remember the speaker we had was a music leader. We had, um, two weeks ago, Shake, Shake. And he said that whenever the devil told him to think something or do something, he did exactly the opposite. That's exactly what I did. Whatever the de devil told me to be sophisticated and clever, I did exactly the opposite. <laughs> I want to make one simple point. And the one simple point I want to make is in the form of a question, a simple question. And the simple question is, do we need the Holy Spirit? Now, it's a perfectly fair question. It's not a trick. It's a perfectly fair question. It's not the kind of question that you're thinking that speakers ask so they can give a witty answer. It's a perfectly straightforward question. And there's only two alternatives. We either do need the Holy Spirit or we don't need the Holy Spirit. Well, I would like to suggest, in fact, we don't need the Holy Spirit. Do not need the Holy Spirit. I look around and I'm relieved to see that just out of my admittedly dim vision, I do not see anyone who has authority over me. <laughs> this does not mean that they may not be lurking in the back. I cannot see the back is a fog, so I cannot see who's must be on the first five or six rows. This has a happy ending if you're lurking in the back there and taking notes. The board is meeting in two weeks, I know that. <laughs> I contend again, we do not need the Holy Spirit. We have, lots of people have, a great deal in this life without the Holy Spirit, and so do we. We have a great deal in this community without the Holy Spirit. I will catalog it for you. We have good company. We have, uh, you enjoy each other's company very much. That's, that's a, a charming thing about Asbury College, that among the student body and the faculty as well, uh, there's, a, there's a good warm feeling of fellowship and uh, mutual satisfaction, more than satisfaction, real pleasure in each other's company. In the men and women's dorms, I know that the halls take on, and this is a good thing, take on sort of the aura of fraternities and sororities, sort of an identity and a, a sense of a closeness. But they're sororities and fraternities without the bad bits, without rush week and without pledge, without the nasty competitiveness. I hope I'm safe in saying that no one's feelings are hurt, no one's left out. They're just sort of little mini pseudo fraternities and sororities with no negative aspects. So it's, it's a good thing. Uh, you form lifelong friendships here, uh, much more so than people do in most schools. Uh, I went to fine schools, as, in the, as, the as the world understands schools, and I only made one friend that I considered it worth my while to maintain over the years, and it's quite distant, really. Whereas I know very well that Asbury people, men and women, form very close lifelong friendships. We have a sense of common purpose at Asbury, which is, again, one of the nicest things, one of the most attractive things about it. And that just reminds me that one of the things that is sort of provoking is that we do not have an old school song that everybody knows. In fact, we do not have an old school song that anybody knows. <laughs> what we need is a new old school song <laughs> for sports events. And I think also a pep band would be nice for sports events. I do not speak of a pep keyboard or a pep trap set. I speak of a pep band. This is a comfortable environment in which to live. Uh, the sort of conviviality, the congeniality that you enjoy with each other, combined with the modern Christian aversion to conflict, has created a very comfortable environment in which 
You do not come against anything challenging in an emotional sense that cannot be easily avoided. This is an attractive proposition. The undergraduate lifestyle has great charm. It's kind of a combination of self-motivation, uh, camaraderie, uh, with a sense of accountability. Uh, often your things are different, there's diversion, there's interesting new things. Uh, you have the satisfaction of knowing that you're working towards an admirable goal, a worthwhile goal, a profitable goal, a useful, efficient use of your time. Uh, so the, the undergraduate lifestyle has real charm. Some, some people, now this don't refer to any of you here, but in my, in my life I've known people that really refuse to graduate. Uh, they'll, uh, they slow the process down or they'll take two or three majors. Uh, because they really enjoy being college students. It's just, I, I have to say that I'm uh, trying to prove to you that we don't need the Holy Spirit. You have a lot of fun, and I will tell you that good, wholesome fun is much rarer outside the walls of a college than you might think. The fun that you have now will be much more, it'll take you much more time and much more money to enjoy once you graduate. Uh, you, you'll have, it's not that life is a gray, grim prison of frustration and misery when you graduate. It has its pleasant aspects. But just in terms of spontaneous fun that you enjoy as college students, it will not be so easy. It won't be so cheap. And it won't, you won't have as much of it. It won't be as inexpensive. It won't be as easy. It won't be as natural. And it will not be as frequent. Not if you actually have to make your way in the world. It won't. If you're able to live independently of work or effort or commitment to other human beings, and if you never have to grow old, well, it'd be fine. But of course, none of those things are going to apply to you. We have music. Music is a fundamental part of Christian worship. And it's always been not just fundamental, but a major part of worship at Esbury College. Now, let me ask you, have you ever known anyone that hung around Christian activities because that person would have a chance to perform? Or have you always believed, have you always sensed that whoever leads in chapel or whoever brings the music, the musical ministry in chapel, uh, does so under the anointing of the Holy Spirit? Have you always believed that's the case? What about Christian work? What about going into a life of Christian service? Do you suppose that there are ever people who go into a life of Christian service because it's the easiest thing to do? That is to say, it's easy because the decision's already been made for them. Um, their parents' expectation, uh, money that they've obtained, peer pressure, uh, their tradition, something they've always thought of and never thought of anything else. Or what if, even worse, what about, have you ever known anyone who's gone into Christian work because it's the easiest way to achieve a middle-class lifestyle without the hard work usually necessary to achieve a middle-class lifestyle. Have you ever known anybody like that? Now, I ask all these questions to demonstrate, to answer my question. My question is, do we need the Holy Spirit? And my answer is, clearly, no. We don't need the Holy Spirit. I have just demonstrated to you how we could enjoy and are enjoying aspects of college life, aspects of our existence together, aspects of our thinking about our future in which the Holy Spirit is completely, or could be, completely absent. I made no mention of the Holy Spirit up till now. So, that's a kind of a discouraging note in the middle, but fear not. <laughs> this has a happy ending. Where does the Holy Spirit come in? Critical point. The Holy Spirit comes in when we invite him. If you want the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, a man named Law, uh, William Law, wrote a book called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, which was a great blessing in John Wesley's life. And William Law said, 
that we do not have the Holy Spirit in our life because we do not so much as intend to have him. In other words, we do not have the Holy Spirit in our life because we don't want the Holy Spirit in our life. The Holy Spirit comes blessedly, powerfully, when he is invited to come. It's my preliminary point. Where does the Holy Spirit come in? The Holy Spirit comes in when you invite him to come in. Now, there is a school of thought that suggests that when we are born again, when we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and is present in our life in, in, in its full measure. And that it's, so it's not so much a question of inviting the Holy Spirit into your life. It's a question of submitting to the Holy Spirit who is present with you. And one of, the, one of our verses uh, in the text that I'm using here, Ephesians, the third uh, chapter, uh, says that his power is at work uh, within us. So whether it's a question of inviting the Holy Spirit to come in or whether it's a question of submitting to the presence of the Holy Spirit that we have hitherto not acknowledged or not acknowledged properly, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit takes control. The Holy Spirit manifests himself. The Holy Spirit becomes the master when we want him to be. And that could come when we realize that we cannot go on without him. We cannot learn this without him. We cannot do this without him. We cannot escape this without him. We cannot master this without him. Could be that each one of us comes to that point, and people do come to that point. Everyone comes to that point, sooner or later, in which we recognize that we cannot go on without the Holy Spirit. But what if we do not have any problem for which we believe that the Holy Spirit's intervention is necessary? What if we don't have any problem, or we think we don't have any problem, in which the power of the Holy Spirit is called for? Doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit comes when he is invited. And the Holy Spirit is invited when we accept that he loves us. When we realize, as little as we can grasp this, because his love surpasses all of our knowledge, but when we, when we begin, when we accept the truth, we cannot understand its power, we cannot understand its, its height and its width and its depth, but when we grasp that God, the Holy Spirit, loves us, and loves us individually. Just recently in my life, uh, three weeks ago, I came to realize that God's infinity, which cannot be grasped, but you have sort of a vague notion of its being immensity, that he is beyond the limits of creation, that he's preexistent, that he, is, that he has no limits in any direction. He's great, mighty, above, above, above. But to be truly infinite, and this is equally incomprehensible, it must also be true that God can be infinitely subdivided, and each of the little subdivisions is as powerful and great as all the others. In fact, each subdivision is itself infinite, so that God can be completely wholly invested in loving, intimately, knowing every detail of your life. He can be as intimately involved in loving and knowing each one of us individually, it's nothing abstract. It's nothing, we do say that God loves mankind, that God, loves, God so loved the world, but that means that he loves each one of us completely holy, knowing everything about us, good, bad, and indifferent. He loves us individually, focused, engraved, clear in his, in his divine mind and in his endless heart, us, you, and me. Once we grasp this, then it does not matter to us any longer 
whether we need the Holy Spirit to solve a problem or not. Because even if we can solve the problem or learn it or do it or escape it or think we can without the Holy Spirit, we don't want to because we don't want to live that way anymore. We don't want to live without him. We now want to embrace him. We want to be enveloped by him. We want to be filled by him because he loves us. We come to need the Holy Spirit not to, because we need help, not primarily and not always, but because we need love. Not just love in general that a dog would need. We need the kind of love now that is unlimited, infinite, and yet focused individually on our needs, our weaknesses, our hopes, our strengths. is incomprehensible. God's love is completely ours. His love is better than life. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, I will praise thee with my lips. The early day Salvation Army, when they had street corner meetings in the 1880s and 1890s, would have meetings in bad parts of town, rundown slums. And the poor people in these places, cold people, hungry people, desolate people, people who were desperate, they heard the message of salvation, the gospel of love, and they could not believe their ears. They could not believe that anyone, never mind the God of the universe, the God who created everything, could actually love them. They couldn't grasp that. Before grace came into their lives, they didn't love each other. Before grace came into their lives, they didn't love themselves. They had a song, dear old Salvation Army Street Corner song, and this was the chorus. On Calvary's tree, he suffered for me. He loved me. I cannot tell why. And in our, one of our verses this morning, Ephesians 3.19, God's love surpasses knowledge. So we come now to the power of the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Holy Spirit. And we rejoice with the apostolic church that being rooted and established in love, we may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now let us, empowered with this promise, let's go back to our catalog of spiritless delights. Let's look at company. Company empowered by the Holy Spirit becomes a fellowship of love. 1 John 3, 14, we know we have passed from death to life because we love one another. We help one another. We, we hold one another up. Uh, we esteem others better than ourselves. We care for one another and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Our music becomes real worship. And by real worship, I believe there are two conditions necessary for real worship. Real worship is praise, it is adoration, it is celebration, and it's a kind of evangelism. And for real worship to happen in the Holy Spirit in the form of musical participation, I think there are two conditions. One is that everyone needs to feel included. Everyone needs to know that he or she's included. Now notice I do not say that everyone needs to be gratified on every detail at every moment, which is flat out at the start an impossibility. And if you aim for that, if a person aims for that, then a person is simply announcing that he or she wishes to make no compromises whatsoever on any important issue connected with worship because to postulate your plans on the supposition you can please everyone is nonsense. So I don't say that everyone needs to be pleased in every aspect every time. I do say that one of the essential conditions of music as worship is that everyone needs to feel included. And the second condition absolutely is that there can be no motive of performance. Now we hear a good deal about Pentecostalism. 
about uh, the Pentecostal renewal uh, that is abroad in the land. Well, I think what we ought to do at Asbury College is embrace our own kind of Pentecostalism. Let's embrace our own understanding of the gift of tongues and let's recognize or let's welcome that music can be that kind of gifted tongue. Music can be a language that is beyond verbal meaning. It can be a language that requires no interpretation and no translation. It can be a language that when guided by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, planned by the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit, can reach into the darkest, broken, most lonely heart and fill it. There's a dear old song. It's one of my favorite songs, Rescue the Perishing. Old street corner song, although written by Fanny Crosby, who wasn't a Salvation Army person, but the song was much used by the Salvation Army in its, in its uh, street corner days. And I want to read you a verse from it. Down in the human heart, Crushed by the tempter, feelings lie bury that grace can restore. Touched by human heart, wakened by kindness, chords that were, were broken will vibrate once more. What about our facilities, our resources, our spaces? Everything about us, all our little corners, our little corners along the arcade, our little corners in the cafeteria, our little corners in the grill, our corners in the dorm, uh, the places we sit in class, um, the spaces around us that we've marked out for ourselves, which is a natural, inevitable, inescapable consequence of human association, and I don't speak against that, I'm only saying we have our little corners. Those little corners can be places of light, they can be places of love, they can be places of rescue. Uh, there was another dear old song I want to quote to you many years ago, probably none of you have ever heard it, called Bright in the Corner Where You Are. Someone far from harbor you can guide across the bar, brighten the corner where you are. And not only that, but our careers. If our careers are planned in conjunction with the leading of the Holy Spirit, if our careers are anointed by the Holy Spirit, it makes no difference what we are doing. If it's honorable, and if we're doing our best, I mean, it makes no difference what we're doing. But in those cases, which would apply to anyone here, then our very lives can be a bright corner. Our very lives, everything about us can be a lighthouse in a dark world, sending out beams, drawing people closer and closer to God's loving Holy Spirit. And will he come? Will he come? Is there anything more clear from Scripture than that Christ the Holy Spirit will come? Uh, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, famous, another famous old-timey. I'm pointing out these old-timey people to show you, hopefully, that you're grasping this that the message, the true message of the gospel, the true beauty of truth is immortal. And you can learn as much from people who lived 100 years ago as you can from people who live now. So I unhesitatingly refer to Spurgeon, who is a name perhaps known to you. He was, uh, wrote devotional books and sermons. Anyways, uh, Spurgeon one time wrote that it always mystified him that when the devil, who is nothing but a liar, speaks, when the devil speaks, we listen. But when the Holy Spirit, who is nothing but truth, and not just truth, but the Holy Spirit is the power to bring this truth alive in our lives, when the Holy Spirit speaks, we do not listen. And the reason, I'm done with Spurgeon now, the reason I think that is true is that we cannot believe that what the Holy Spirit is saying is true because it seems to be too good to be true. The Holy Spirit comes to us and opens promises to us and tells us he has not only these promises, but that he has the power to fulfill these promises in our lives. And it seems too good to be true. Well, that's correct. It is too good to be true. That's what the gospel is. 
The gospel is too good to be true. It cannot be true. It is too wonderful to be true, but it is true. The fact that it cannot be true, the fact that it cannot possibly apply to you or to me is earthly thinking. It's mortal thinking. It, it is too good to be true if you haven't got the Holy Spirit to illuminate you. And if it weren't for the Holy Spirit to empower the gift and to make it real for you, it would be too good to be true. But it is not too good to be true for him. It is absolutely true. See how God promised us his spirit in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, third chapter. John the Baptist says, people are praising him, and he says, one who comes after me, whose shoes I am unworthy to hold, one who comes after me, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Twice in the Gospel of Luke, our Savior promises the Holy Spirit. On the one, in one place he says, which among you would give your children something nasty if the child asked for something good? So how much more will your Heavenly Father answer your prayers? And then ladies, more specifically later he says, if you will wait and tarry, wait and tarry with open hearts, I will come. And probably most famously of all is Acts 1.8. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And by witnesses, I believe the scripture means that lonely, lost, searching, yearning, questioning, idly curious souls will be brought to the Savior through your life, through your, through your witness, through, through your endeavors, uh, through your being what you are in the Spirit. This community is filled with lonely, left out people. People feel lonely and left out. When the Holy Spirit says we are witnesses in his power, I don't think it means necessarily, certainly doesn't mean essentially or unavoidably that we go abroad to be witnesses. It means we be witnesses to his power and his love where we're at. First of all, where you're at. It says clearly power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses here and over there, over there, and then a little further and then to the ends of the earth. Now let me just conclude by telling you that when you were first saved, or reminding you, I beg your pardon, let me just close by reminding you that when you were first saved, you had faith enough to hope. If you have faith enough to hope this morning that the Holy Spirit stands ready, and not just ready, the Holy Spirit is eager, he yearns uh, to come on you and to come on me, to come on us with explosive power. If you, have, if you have faith enough to hope that that is true, then you have faith enough to ask that the Holy Spirit comes. If you have faith enough to hope that the Holy Spirit hovers near and yearns to fill your life and to change your life and to change company into a fellowship of love and to change music into real worship and to change our facilities and our spaces and our offices and our, and our automobile seats and our dorm rooms into powerhouses of light and love. If you have uh, enough faith, just enough faith to hope that that is true, just enough faith to hope that that is true, then God is ready to come. He promises exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. He asks us this morning, and I believe this with all my heart, he asks us this morning, if we have faith to hope, just faith to hope, then we have faith to trust in his love. And if we have faith to trust in his love, then we have no choice. It's not as though we have an option anymore, not an option that any person who is anxious to know God's power would, would take up. And that is, we have no option but to invite him in power into our lives. We have no remaining option. If we have faith enough to hope, 
We have faith enough to ask him. We have faith enough to trust his love to that extent. Then we have no remaining option but to accept his power and his love. Now, as is my want, I have finished my few remarks early, but I think we should spend two or three minutes. And I've asked um, Brother Roller uh, to lead us just in uh, one verse and a chorus of um, Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. And after that, then I will just bring the benediction, which is the last two verses of the passage that I uh, shared with you this morning. So if Brother Roller will come, I will just sit over here.